you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. This is uh, Palm Sunday on the Christian calendar, the first day of Holy Week, the day when we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, on the first day of the week, would arrive with a meek and lowly posture, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. But he would arrive to great pomp and circumstance as the people lay palm branches before him and shouted cries of Hosanna to God in the highest. Within a matter of just days, those cries of Hosanna would be turned to cries of crucify him, crucify him. Jesus was arrested on Thursday of that week, at least that's the traditional understanding of the movement of events in the Holy Week, crucified on Friday, we know as Good Friday, and raised from the dead three days later on Sunday, the first day of the next week. I want us to continue focusing, rather than on Palm Sunday today, on the resurrection itself. I want to keep pressing through this Easter season at the centrality of resurrection to us. There seem to be in the Bible three primary benefits of the resurrection of Jesus to us. The first of those is quite obvious. Our salvation is a primary benefit. In fact, it is the primary benefit of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Our hope, the strength and stay of our soul, our eternity rest in the simple angelic declaration made to Mary at the tomb, why seekest thou the living among the dead? Christ is not here, he is risen. That's our hope. Apart from the resurrection, our faith is in vain, our preaching is futile, and we are a pitiful lot, the Apostle Paul says. That's our hope, the resurrection is our salvation, and we celebrate that here. Every week, in fact, the simple fact that we meet on Sunday is to memorialize this day as the sacred day when the stone was rolled away and Jesus walked from that garden grave in great victory. Not only victory for himself over death, hell, and the grave, but victory in our stead, just as Christ took our place on the cross, so too we stand in Christ and the power of his resurrection. A second benefit of the resurrection for us is what I'll call here in the shorthand without a lot of explanation because we'll go there next week, moral ability. If you're operating according to the notion that you're going to somehow pull yourself together, you're going to gather yourself up by your bootstraps, get your act together, and, and bring yourself to be presented before God, and something is going to happen there in the positive, you have misunderstood the nature of the gospel. Apart from resurrection power abiding in your heart, you simply cannot do the things that bring pleasure to God. One of the sweet promises of the gospel, an often overlooked promise of the gospel, is the guarantee that because of the resurrection of Jesus, you don't have to live the way you have lived anymore. 
There is freedom from our sin by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A power we enjoy by the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. This is a second major benefit for us of the resurrection. But it's the third that is the focus of the passage that we're going to be studying together this morning. Namely, the resurrection of Jesus bodily, physically from the grave is the guarantee of our bodily, physical resurrection from the grave. Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of our resurrection in the day to come. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor. The Bible says, beginning in verse number 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Foolish one, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. For one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth and made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. Like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. Brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Quickly this morning, five principles with regards to the resurrection of Jesus. Notice first that what the Apostle Paul describes here 
is the transformation of our bodies as a necessary part of the resurrection. What I mean to say here is that our physical death is a necessary part of the experience of resurrection transformation. Not only in the first section of our passage, which is verses 35 through 38, but throughout the, the text we've just read, Paul seems to be working, at, at least secondarily, to soften the blow of the reality of death. Resurrection functions in the Bible, if for no other reason than to soften the blow of death. Death is a scary thing, right? But what the Apostle Paul is at least by strong implication reminding us of in our passage is that we needn't fear crossing over that threshold for what awaits us on the other side is a glory that by far exceeds anything we've known in the present. Verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And then Paul refers to those who've asked the question as fools or as foolish one in verse number 36. The motive behind the question, Paul clearly does not appreciate. He calls them fools and then proceeds to answer the question in a very straightforward way. Now, there are a number of issues with regards to resurrection in the Corinthian church. Paul is engaging the objections that have been raised. There are those who have outright denied the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, without the resurrection of Jesus, our faith is in vain. Then there seems to be a school of thought where there are those who have accepted the resurrection of Jesus, but would deny our resurrection as the people of God. And Paul reaches the same conclusions. He describes the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of our resurrection. As audacious as it sounds to say, by faith in Christ, you will be raised from the dead. We have verification of this reality in history. Jesus' resurrection is the down payment. It is the guarantee of our physical resurrection in him. Then there seemed to be a school that really wrestled with the idea that we're going to be raised. This physical body is going to be raised like it is in its current state. They're wrestling with what we will be like in resurrection. And Paul seems to be arguing that though there are similarities between our resurrection existence and our resurrection or, or our existence now, there are also some pretty stark dissimilarities. Paul says in verse 36, foolish ones, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you're not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. Now don't think here about heavenly in the sense of heaven where God is. Think heavenly in terms of sun, moon, and stars, those things out there in the cosmos. Earthly bodies, bodies that exist within the earthly realm. Within Greek culture, the earth itself was referred to as a body. So Paul is saying there are different types of flesh. There are different types of animals. There are there are bodies in the heavens, there are bodies in the earth, and all enjoy a different degree of splendor. Verse 41, there's a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars, for one star differs from another star in splendor. The gist of what Paul is describing in these verses is this. 
Although, again, there are incredible similarities between our present existence and the life we will know, the body we will enjoy in the resurrection, there are also dissimilarities. Paul uses an agricultural illustration to advance this point. You sow a seed in order to grow a plant. Wheat is the example that Paul cites in our passage. You don't sow a seed or plant a seed to grow seeds. You plant the seed with the expectation that it will yield forth life. Now there's a direct connection that exists between the seed and the life that God grants forth from that seed. But there are dissimilarities as well. There are differences. And Paul assigns a certain measure of glory to every created being, a certain measure of glory to the seed, and a certain measure of glory to the life that that seed produces. In the same way, a certain measure of glory is assigned to our human experience. A certain measure of glory is enjoyed by all who have been created in the image of God. We enjoy a certain measure of glory even as we are now. The Bible says that we are the apex of God's creative work. He looked upon mankind and determined, he declared, it is good. There is a certain glory assigned to human beings for the simple fact that we were created in the image of God. But one day, this body will perish and it will be buried in the ground, a seed sown. And Paul says, in the resurrection, that seed will give, will give forth life. It will, from the seed, produce life similar but dissimilar to our current existence. And the splendor, the glory that that resurrected body will enjoy will make our present experience, the glory we enjoy now under the condition of corruption and sin, seem a small and petty thing. What we will enjoy in resurrection is an experience like unto our present experience without all the pains and agonies and anguish, with all the dishonor that comes with living in a creation that has been corrupted so deeply tainted by the presence of sin. What awaits us, the flesh we will enjoy, the experiences that will be ours, the blood that is flowing in our resurrected body veins is a glory that makes the present glory pale in comparison. Now in verse 42, Paul continues with this compare and contrast of our present existence and the existence we'll enjoy in the age to come. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now what Paul is describing in verses 42 through 44 is a reversal of the curse of the garden. You see this theme throughout the New Testament. God is, God is undoing what has been done as sin entered the world. God is ultimately bringing us back through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, in the creation as God fashioned it, as God intended it, there was intimate fellowship between God and man. 
One of my favorite verses from the book of Genesis, in fact, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is that reflection in Genesis 2 that says that God came and in the cool of the day walked in the midst of the garden. A reminder of the close and intimate fellowship God intended to enjoy between the apex of his creation, mankind, and himself. But with the entrance of sin into the world, Not only did distance grow between God and man, man in his unrighteous state, God in his infinite holiness, but the garden, a place of great beauty, was now adorned with thorns and thistles, the marks and stains of sin. What had been created in incorruption had now been corrupted by the presence of sin. What had enjoyed by the power of God in the absence of sin, great honor, had now been diminished in its glory. What had been fashioned with such power had now come under a curse of of weakness. And now Paul says, by the resurrection of Jesus, what you're observing is a reversal of our fortunes, a return to the Garden of Eden, God undoing what we had so unjustly done in our own power, sown in corruption, to be raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. A reversal of curse. God undoing that which we had so unjustly in our own power and foolishness done to ourselves. There is coming a day when this corrupted body will be laid by, sown a seed in corruption. But there is likewise coming a day when this body will be raised incorruptible. There is coming a day when this body in its dishonor, even as believers, our bodies are to some extent dishonorable. They'll be laid aside But at the sound of the trumpet on the last day, they will be raised by faith in Jesus in great glory. Your body and my body will in all likelihood be sown in weakness. Our very death is a testament to the frailty, the brevity of life, to our own personal, individual, and collective weakness. Most of us over the course of time will lose the strength and vigor of youth over an extended period of time. Sickness will set in. Cancer will eat away at our bodies. If nothing else, age will begin to deteriorate our weak and frail existence until finally at the end of our weaknesses, we are laid aside. But there is coming a day when this frail body will be raised in great power. Paul closes the contrast by stating in verse 44, we're to be sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. He's not talking here about some kind of ghostly disembodied experience. He simply uses the adjectives of natural and spiritual here to make reference to our current existence and the resurrection life that we'll enjoy. Our natural body touched and tainted by sin in great ways will be raised without the corruption that comes as, as, a, as a member of the family of Adam. This is continued into the next few verses. The remainder of verse 44 says, if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became 
a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, Paul does this at a number of places along the way, but this is a little bit different. He uses Adam and the second Adam, Adam as we know him in the Genesis account, and Jesus as the second, the last Adam, as comparison in order to demonstrate the power of the gospel, the way God has adopted us into his family and changed our fate by faith in Jesus. The the best known example of this is in Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, in order to demonstrate the way justification works, the way the forgiveness of God works toward our sin, he explains that sin enters the world through Adam. And all of us as descendants of Adam are born under the condition of corruption, under the curse of the garden. We are present, at least representatively, in Adam when he sins in the garden so that not only does Adam fall in the garden, but all of mankind, his descendants, fall with him. We inherit from our fathers this condition of corruption and sin so that we are conceived in sin. The reason you and I are sinners is because we get it from our fathers. Now, some of you get it from your daddy, but we all get it from our father, the shared fatherhood of Adam over all mankind. The covenantal head of mankind is Adam. In Adam, we fall. In Adam, we find the origin of sin in us. But what Paul labors to demonstrate in Romans chapter 5 is that in the same way we have inherited sin from Adam, now by faith in Jesus we have a new covenantal head. We have a new father. By adoption, Jesus has become our father. And from Jesus we inherit righteousness. When you think about it in these terms, When you begin to talk about inheriting sin from Adam, there are those who would push back at that notion. It sounds, it seems unfair. You and I fell in the foundations of the world as Adam made the fateful decision to break with the will of God. And you say, well, I I wasn't even there. Well, yes, you were. At least symbolically, you were there. It seems unfair. It seems unfair that we would be found guilty for something someone else would do. Until you begin to look at this thing from the perspective of the Christian. We are now found righteous, not because of something we have done, but because of something someone else has done, namely what Jesus did at the cross and in his resurrection. Now, there's a little difference in what Paul does in Romans 5 and what Paul does here in the Adam-Christ comparison. He says again, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Whereas Romans 5 teaches us that we inherit righteousness from Jesus so that we can be declared righteous in the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us that we inherit resurrection from Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of our own resurrection. A part of what it means to be adopted into the family of Jesus is to be an heir to his righteousness and to be an heir to resurrection. His resurrection in time past is the guarantee of our resurrection in the future. 
What we see in our passage so far is that the transformation of our bodies is a necessary part of our resurrection. That the resurrection marks the transformation of our physical bodies. There's a greater splendor, a greater glory to be enjoyed in our resurrected bodies. And then here that resurrection marks the end of the curse of Adam. Being brought back to the garden. To a place of peaceful bliss. Close fellowship with God. The more I read and, and I hope the better I understand the Bible the more I'm convinced that what we're looking at in the scripture is a literal return to the intimate fellowship and peaceful bliss enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. Not the things that we so often conjure in our imagination or envision heaven will be like, but a nearness to God as God ultimately intended it in the very beginning. Look to verse 47. The Bible says here, the first man was from the earth and made of dust. Second man is from heaven. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. Like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. I really wish I knew what that verse meant. But I know enough to know that what it describes is good. Just as we have been fashioned from the dust as Adam was fashioned before us, so too we will be in our resurrected bodies fashioned in a heavenly way, even as our Lord Jesus is himself the heavenly man. Verse 49 says, just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. In your resurrected body, you as a believer in Christ will be like your Savior Jesus. Verse 50, there's a bit of a transition that begins to take place here. Paul begins to celebrate the victory we have over sin and death. Paul says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. We're returning to this theme of death as an essential part of our resurrection experience. Jesus would say in his own ministry, except a seed die, and falls to the ground, it remains alone. But if it dies and it falls to the ground, it brings forth life, it springs forth a harvest. Paul regards our physical life in a similar light. Except we die as a seed and fall to the ground, we remain even as we are. And he couldn't be clear here, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, at least not flesh and blood as it currently exists. With the stains of sin and unrighteousness, the condition of corruption we've inherited from our father Adam, it must undergo this radical transformation over time. Paul is abundantly clear in Philippians 3 and 21 that Christ will transform our lowly bodies even as Paul looks to the prospect of death with some anticipation. He likewise looks to the transformation of his present experience to be adapted, to be fit with all of the characteristic traits necessary to abide in the immediate presence of a perfectly righteous God. Paul goes on to say in verse 51, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I've been trying to sell this as the preschool ministry theme for a long time, right? This is our guarantee to you, moms and dads. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. This is it. Paul continues in verse 52. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, 
at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. I can remember as a relatively new Christian and for some time after that really struggling with what exactly the Apostle Paul was saying in these verses. There are far too many multi-syllable words in 1 Corinthians 15 for this to read, at least at first glance, in a smooth or straightforward way. But in spite of the many multi-syllable words that make up 1 Corinthians 15, the principle of what Paul is communicating is really rather simplistic. On the last day, the trumpet of God will sound, and this corrupted body will be changed incorruptible. On the last day, the trumpet of God will sound, and this mortal body will be raised in immortality. You do understand, don't you? Maybe there's some slippage with regards to how deeply we understand how corrupted we truly are. There, there, there is a real absence in our world today of a firm understanding of the doctrine of sin. We are not inherently good people waiting for an opportunity to demonstrate our inherent goodness. We are broken. We are immoral. We are godless. We are sheep going astray. And I could walk you through a million ways that a breakdown in our understanding of the doctrine of sin and its role in our life is playing itself out in the culture around us, shaping the way we interact, shaping the decisions that we make, and all in unwholesome, unhelpful kind of ways. You and I live in a condition of corruption, but on that day, we will be raised incorruptible. You and I are mortal beings. Some of you younger among us who've yet to experience tragedy, heartache, or some deep pain are still, whether you're aware of it or not, living with this feeling of immortal invincibility. Not because of some confidence in the resurrection or what awaits us in the sweet by and by, but because there's a certain youthful vigor that has the way of deluding us into believing that nothing can happen to us, nothing can take away this feeling of physical prowess and invincibility. But you're a mortal man, a mortal woman, a mortal boy, a mortal girl. But on that day, the Bible says the trumpet will sound and this mortal body will be clothed in immortality such that the saying will unfold, death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul quotes here Isaiah chapter 25. In the heart of Isaiah, there's a celebration there of what God would do in days to come, how God would make all things right by his powerful hand. It's easy to see how Isaiah 25, 8 fits this context. Death has been swallowed up in victory is an appropriate way of speaking to the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. It's what he says in the next verse. It's always been a little interesting to me. Verse 55, the Bible says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Here he breaks from the Isaiah quote and actually begins to quote Hosea chapter 13 and verse number 14. This is one of the most interesting passages in the New Testament where an Old Testament passage is quoted in a way 
that seems to be at complete odds, at least at first glance, with the point that Paul is attempting to make in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read from Hosea 13, just so that you understand something of the context from which it comes. Death, where are your barbs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Although he flourishes among his brothers, an east wind will come, a wind from the Lord rising up from the desert. His water source will fail. His spring will run dry. The wind will plunder the treasury of every precious item. Samaria will bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Paul takes a passage that's supposed to be about victory over death from the most gruesome depiction of the death of the people of God in all of the Old Testament. And says in verse 55, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? You understand, I hope, from our reading of Hosea just now, that in Hosea, these rhetorical questions are asked with the expectation that the people know exactly where the sting of death is. It's in their flesh. And they know precisely the victory of death, for it's now become imminent for them. It is as though Paul takes the passage and he turns it on its head by design. Whereas before the resurrection, there were these seasons of judgment, seasons of discipline visited upon the people. It was necessary that seasons of judgment would come as they often rebelled. There were seasons of rebellion and therefore there were seasons of judgment. But what seemed so out of kilter, so off, so wrong, so absent from that old covenant experience, God had resolved finally and forever in the death and resurrection of his son. Whereas death was imminent and would often visit the people of Israel. Whereas the sting of sin was ever present, always in the side of the people of God. Now, by the resurrection, we have secured victory through Jesus Christ. The sting of death is gone. The power of sin has been removed. And any prospect of death is off the table for the resurrected people of God. Paul continues in verse 56. Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death has been embraced entirely by Jesus. The sting of death is taken away by Christ. He says here, the power of sin is the law. The law stands to accuse us. The verdict is guilty under the law. You and I have sinned, but that law has been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. All that has been so wrong has been made so right by the life and the death and ultimately the resurrection of our Savior Jesus, such that Paul is able to say in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection is the assurance of our victory. Sting of death is taken away and the power of sin is absolved in that Christ has fulfilled the law in absolute perfection. Now Paul's given us 57 verses in 1 Corinthians 15 of quite substantive doctrinal matter with regards to the resurrection. But he brings it all to a single verse summary in terms of how we make application of this teaching. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In light of the resurrection, what in the world are we to do? If, if we're living in close proximity to the resurrection, if it's near our heart, if we're living in light of the resurrection, if we are relishing the promises of the resurrection, if we're remembering on a continual basis that the resurrection is our salvation, that the resurrection opens doors for obedience, we are empowered by resurrection power. That's what abides within our heart. If we're mindful that the resurrection is our guarantee of a physical bodily resurrection, how does this begin to unfold in our daily lives what does our life look like it's a life of immovability always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in christ that's what it looks like we might reduce verse 58 to two very brief straightforward commandments persevere in season and out of season persevere under great duress and hardship, persevere. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. There's coming a day when all mankind stands before the judgment bar of God in a courtroom that knows nothing of technicalities, of shortcuts, or outside influence. And you'll give an account. And our prayerful expectation by faith in Jesus is to hear from the Father, well done, thy good and faithful servant, not because of things that we have done, but because we have taken our refuge behind the blood of Jesus and in that moment are accredited with his perfect righteousness. Persevere, persevere, persevere. Immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Persevere. Secondly, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Isn't that described here? Be immovable, abounding, steadfast. The idea is that we are unflinching, uncompromising in the face of opposition. This is a reasonable conclusion to reach from the notion of resurrection, right? I have for a long time, we've had these conversations with the boys. I'm trying to raise three boys, and you want to raise three courageous, brave boys. And we've talked often about this repeated command in the Scripture that we do not fear. Does it strike you as strange that the Bible says way over 300 times, do not fear? I mean, there are far more central theological doctrinal issues that aren't spoken to nearly as many times as that little simple commandment, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. This idea, whether it's spelled out that way or not, of not fearing always occurs within the context of, of resurrection. And I've been saying this recently, and I'm going to continue to say it into the future because I believe this is at the heart of what the Bible intends for us to embrace with regards to resurrection. We can live with a spirit of invincibility because any pleasure we might forego in the here and now, any pain we might experience, even the loss of our physical life, God will give back and all the more in the resurrection. And maybe it is that God repeats the command that we do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, because it is so near the heart of faith in God that he would give this life back and all the more on the last day. 
that we would regard our experiences here with the right kind of perspective, that we would throw caution to the wind to see his kingdom advanced, that we would worry not about the troubles of tomorrow, but make our labors, make our focus, investing ourselves in eternally significant things with the very moment that God has given us. If this is the way resurrection in, is intended to function, and I believe it is, that we would operate with a sense of invincibility. It makes far more sense that God would say over 350 times that we need not fear. You need not worry about your body. Don't worry about food or clothing. Doesn't God provide for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field? Not even Solomon in all of his glory was adorned like one of these. God knows the very hairs of your head. He's attending to those needs. We can throw caution to the wind and live for his glory, going out in a blaze of glory because of what the resurrection promises each of us. Anything we might forego, any passing pleasure, even the prospect of physical death, God will restore on the last day and all the more. Embrace this reality. I cannot tell you the way God has restored zeal and enthusiasm for him and life in general through this notion that this physical body he will give back on the last day at the sounding of the trumpet. This corruption will be clothed in incorruption. This mortal will be clothed in immortality. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of my physical resurrection by faith in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and for these moments to reflect on what the future holds for us. God, I pray that you would situate our priorities, shape our perspective such that we would see things as you intend. I pray, God, that we would live in light of the promise of our resurrection. Lord, help us to live in light of your son's resurrection. And God, as we celebrate this resurrection season, remind us powerfully of the central role of, of that single act as the stone was rolled away and Jesus walked forth in great victory. Indeed, he is not there. He is risen. Help us to remember this and to remember it well. And as we do, God, I, I pray that, that you would chase away any fears, any anxieties, that you would help us to be still and know that you are God, that your son Jesus is at your right hand in resurrection power. Help us to operate in the power of your Holy Spirit, to abide in Christ even as Christ abides in us to relish our union with Jesus in the likeness of his death. We have died to ourselves in the likeness of his resurrection. We are raised to walk in the newness of life. Help us, Lord, to live that out with each day that passes. God, I pray for those who are here who don't know you, who, who haven't understood the message of the gospel, who have not eyes to see nor ears to hear. God, would you quicken their heart today that they might know of the love of Jesus, of his sacrifice for their sin and his resurrection from the grave. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, communicate what is beyond our ability, Lord, the urgent need that every man, woman, and boy and girl would repent of their sin and believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin.
God, work it so we pray in these next moments. In Jesus' name, amen.